Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Books podcast. Uh, joining us today is Simon Maybon of the University of Lancaster. And uh, we're going to be talking about his new book, uh, Houses Built on Sand, which is just about to come out from Manchester University Press. Uh, Simon, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's really exciting. Uh, Long time listener, first time guest. <laughs> first, but not the last. Well, hopefully not. So, well, I guess we'll see. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about the book. Uh, sure. What's the main purpose of the book? What were you trying to achieve? Yeah. And uh, you know, what do you want people to know about houses built on sand? So I guess the main thrust of what I was trying to do is to make, uh, to try and understand how and why the Arab uprisings played out in particular ways across the region. And uh, the initial starting point was to look at states, state building processes, uh, and then to take those particular processes of state building from across the region and to compare and contrast why certain things played out in certain ways and then they played out in different ways in other in other political projects. But I soon found that just getting into discussions of statehood and, and states more broadly in the region is, is deeply problematic and it would have required a lot of engagement, a lot of fencing off, a lot of questions about about relativism, cultural relativism, debate about sort of the application of Western ideas to the region. And I thought, you know what, maybe there's a better way of doing this. So I thought, why not use the concept of sovereignty as a way of looking at fundamentally relationship, the relationship between rulers and ruled. Mm-hmm. And that kind of helps me to do a similar type of thing to what I started out with. But what I've done instead is to look at how the relationship between rulers and ruled has evolved across the region, across the 20th and 21st centuries. And those particular relationships have created conditions that sometimes allowed for the possibility of dissent and political protest, while at other times prohibited it from taking place as a consequence of the types of structures and forces and, um, I guess, coercive capacities of particular regimes, which meant that people could take to the streets or not. So it's almost an historical sociology kind of approach, going back and looking, as you said, at these processes of state formation. But then they manifest in very different ways. Yeah, they do. And, and that, I mean, it was a, a challenge to try and, and, and bring down all of this complex web of histories and competing histories into a, a book-length project. Because I, I try and draw on, on all the states across the region, not going into North Africa, sort of stopping at Egypt, but including Iran and Turkey. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a lot of competing historiographies at play and competing relationships and and competing positions of identities and claims to sovereign power that play out across the region. So what I've tried to do is is privilege particular states at particular times to try and tell particular stories that help us to understand the relationship between certain groups at certain points in history. So, for instance... Yeah, well, let's take take one country and just kind of walk us through how does this play out in terms of how the historical sociology of the state yeah. then shapes the reception of the Arab Spring, as it were. Sure, okay, so we'll, we'll use Bahrain, because I think that's a really interesting case in terms of the evolution of political projects from colonial times all the way through to to the contemporary post-uprisings, post-sectarianization context. And I think what's, what's really interesting is that if you look at that, you look at the way in which power evolved from the... Um, sort of the the impact of the British in the 1920s and 30s post-Treaty of Versailles, the British were an all, well, essentially a, a colonial power, basically. 
And they were exerting a great deal of influence over what was happening on the state, privileging particular um, tribal groups, particular sect-based communities. The Sunnis, predominantly because of, of fears about shared links with, with Iran. And it's really interesting to see the documentation from that time about these fears. I mean, we think of, of these fears about Shia communities having links to Iran as being relatively contemporary, consequence of the, the Shia crescent, quote-unquote. But in fact, they, they date back much, much earlier. And we see some of these, these fears and concerns dating back to the, about the 1920s and British concerns about ties between these different groups. So, so in Bahrain, we have that type of experience. Then the British withdraw east of Suez. They pull out of the Gulf. And the Al Khalifa start to, to assert full sovereign control. And that's where I think it gets really, really interesting. Because you have this, this complex set of identities that are playing out across the political spectrum. And what I try and do, particularly in the case of Bahrain, is challenge this thesis that it's all about sects. And of course there are, there are sect-based questions within Bahrain. And they're certainly prevalent and become more prevalent as the, as the century goes on. But during the, I guess, during the 50s, 60s, 70s, you have a range of other forces that, are, that become kind of parabolic. Uh, the sort of the socioeconomic, the tribal, the ethnic, mm-hmm. um, the pan-Arab, the, sort of the Arab nationalist movement, and all these are playing out, posing serious challenges to the survival of the Al Khalifa. And so what I try and do is demonstrate that particular times, the Al Khalifa has cultivated this sense of, I guess, sovereign power that regulates life in particular ways. So in the early 1970s, a state of exception, a state of emergency was declared by the Al Khalifa, which basically gave them the right to do whatever they want, whatever they need to regulate life and make sure that they stay in power. And that came off the back of a, a constitutional experiment. There were elections that took place, mm-hmm. but the Al Khalifa didn't really get the outcome that they wanted. So they declared the state of emergency saying, look, we need to get control of the situation. There was widespread protest at the time, and they thought, you know what, khalas, we need to clamp down on what's happening. And that wasn't a consequence of sect-based tensions, even though the Iranians were starting to lay claim to Bahrain, and there was a, a later UN plebiscite that took place, but rather because of socioeconomic frustrations, tribal tensions, ethnic tensions, and all these started to bubble up and pose different types of challenges. So what we see from the 1970s onwards is is the regime, the Al Khalifa regime, starting to use different technologies of power as a means of trying to regulate life. And that, we see it to this day, it involves um, arrests, detention, torture, more recently citizenship stripping, um, expulsion. And we see that playing out in the context of, of domestic uncertainty, domestic instability, geopolitical factors, sectarianization, and within all of that, the Al Khalifa is feeling particularly vulnerable, given that it's ruling over a, a, a Shia majority with a Sunni minority, given that it's a tiny archipelago that is caught geographically between the Saudis and the Iranians. And it felt incredibly vulnerable. And that's how we start to get this context for how it tries to regulate life across the island. So how does that look different from any other state in the region um, in terms of you know, the, the one, one way that historical sociology t- typically makes these contributions, mm-hmm. as, and as you mentioned earlier in this conversation, is it kind of shows the different trajectories and the different types of states which emerge yeah. out of those kind of older conditions. And so 
if you look at a, a country like Bahrain mm -hmm. um, and, and these technologies of control that you're describing and the uncertainties and the declaration of state of exception, how is that different from the way other states have tried to maintain control and, uh, you know, and yeah. exercise power? Well, what I do in the book is I use this theoretical approach from Giorgio Agamben, an Italian political philosopher who talks about uh, the state of exception and the regulation of life through a range of different technologies of power. And what I've found by using that approach is that we can see that there are, there are similar types of strategies deployed by, by states across the region, but contingent on an array of different types of challenges. And uh, these, these are context-specific, both temporally and spatially. And so it's, it's actually really interesting. You get similarities in terms of the types of processes and technologies of power that are being used but that are being driven by different types of, of challenges. So for example, um, Israel offers an interesting set of, of challenges and a, an interesting set of contextual factors that there were threats to the regime, there were threats to the state, be it through the, um, the, the Arab-Israeli wars, be it through the perception about the challenges posed by um, the Palestinian movement, uh, Arab-Israelis in the state, and so what the Israelis did is they started to rely on colonial power, colonial laws. And they drew on these colonial laws to say, look, in these times of crisis, we need to suspend the law to do whatever we can to try and make sure that we stay in power. And that gave them the right to do a whole host of different things, including sort of uh, arrests, detentions, torture, um, the, the destruction of particular spaces. They were reimagining of particular spaces in their particular vision. So, I mean, for example, in the old city of Jerusalem, you saw when, the, when the, the military went in in 1967, they transformed the nature of the Western Wall and they transformed the, uh, the landscape around that space by demolishing certain parts of the, the architecture to try and create this new vision of what Jerusalem would be. There was a whole planning department established to try and support that vision. And that's what I try and look at in the book as well. The, these different modes of power, how it, how it plays out across different spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think that spatial factor is really important because that really demonstrates the, the seriousness of how power can, can shape particular mm -hmm. spaces. The destruction of the area around the Western Wall, for example, and the destruction of Pearl Roundabout in Bahrain. So are there any countries where uh, they don't exercise these kinds of regimens of power? Um, in other words, is this unique to particular types of states, uh, Bahrain and, and Israel perhaps, or is this a generic feature of how you understand that states regulate life and exercise sovereignty? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, the work of Agamben is traditionally applied to the Western world and it's couched in, in Western political theology, um, political philosophy. But what I, what I try and do early on in the book is show, look, there's nothing inherent in it that says we can't deploy it elsewhere. And once I've done that, I try to show that, look, there are similar types of processes that play out across the region, be it in monarchies, in republics, in theocracies or in, in democracies, there's still this, this fundamental concern about survival. There are domestic challenges, domestic instability, and what regimes try and do is deploy sovereign power in whatever way they see fit in order to, to try and regulate life. 
And that's quite a common feature. It's just the factors that give rise to the perceived instability, the factors that prompt regimes and sovereign powers to behave in certain ways differ. So, well, let's look at then kind of the cross-regional yeah. response to sure. the Arab uprisings in 2011. Mm-hmm. So give, give us an example of countries which responded differently because of these prior, you know, the, the prior forms and uh, modes of control of, of sovereignty. Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting point in that you have certain examples whereby there are opportunities for protesters to, to take to the streets. And there are sort of the manifestation of widespread latent frustrations, mm-hmm. such as well, what we saw across the Arab uprisings. This all stemmed from socioeconomic, political, cultural frustrations, demands for political reform, etc., etc. But in some cases, the response was, was more economically driven, like in Saudi Arabia, there was somewhere in the region of $120 billion thrown at the problem, which unsurprisingly made it go away, other than one protester who turned up at the Saudi Day of Rage, a, a school teacher called Khaled al-Jahani, who gave an interview to the BBC and then quickly disappeared. Um, but then across the region, you have obviously widespread protest movements. And what I try and show is that with these protest movements, what we start to see is regimes starting to frame them in particular ways as a consequence of their, their domestic instability and their concerns. And we start to get this process of sectarianization. Mm-hmm. It's a building on the, the burgeoning work on the sectarianization thesis. I argue that it's it's part of a regional wave, a set of regional concerns that stems from not just sort of an existential fear about the sectarian other, mm-hmm. but a heavily politicized geopolitical set of, of concerns about the role of Iran in the region, about the role of, of Shia groups such as Hezbollah. And this isn't just a contemporary phenomena, but it dates back to, to the early days of the Islamic Revolution, um, the formation of a group called the Islamic Front for the Liberation of Bahrain, whose actions really sort of provoked fear in the heart of the Al Khalifa and, and neighboring Sunni states because they were operating with the explicit support of, of Iran trying to topple a particular regime. So all these concerns about Iranian manipulation, about socioeconomic forces, about the lack of political reform, this sort of king's dilemma, um, about just general frustrations with the political status quo really come to the fore. And in that context, this, this sort of narrative of sectarianization, of framing the other as a particular threat, poses, well, it, it creates an opportunity. And what we see very quickly is that the likes of Bahrain, um, Jordan, Saudi Arabia start to coalesce. They come together around this shared narrative and the narrative of sectarianization gives them the, the means of working together in some form of sort of cohesion mm-hmm. against the Iranians. And what we also see is that that allows for a burgeoning rapprochement with Israel as a consequence of long-standing Israeli-Iranian relations. But what I try and say in the book is that this sort of changing regional security uh, environment stemming from domestic concerns and domestic instability allows for the redrawing of regional politics. But now it's not just a narrative and framing though, because this focus on the regulation of life and um, life politics Mm -hmm. and all of these physical manifestations as well. And so you, you know, when you think about that, 
in terms of the regulation of everyday life mm -hmm. and the construction of urban space yep. and things like that go into those those particularities. One thing which has always been very striking to me is that you know the modal strategy of the early Arab uprisings, which is being replicated today, mm -hmm. was the seizure of some central urban space, Tahrir yeah. Square, uh, in both Egypt and in Iraq, uh, you see it in Yemen, the Pearl Roundabout, yep. Bahrain. And so why did these countries create an architecture which would allow for that kind of mass gathering and, um, and, and kind of regime challenge? Um, when they're so focused on using yeah. the regulation of life to maintain their control? I think that's, that's a really interesting question. And in part, I think it stems from the, the spate of, of regime changes that took place across the 50s, 60s and 70s in some states. In part, it's perhaps a consequence of efforts to build spaces or create spaces for widespread populist sentiment and expressions of support dating back to the Arab nationalist movement. But I think in certain places, I'm thinking of Egypt in particular, there was this acknowledgement that spaces like Tahrir posed a threat. And so Tahrir, prior to the uprisings, was, was kind of fenced off in a lot of ways because the, um, the, the Egyptian government were trying to frame it as we're doing some building work, we're trying to build a car park. And obviously that wasn't really true. It was just a, an attempt to try and regulate space to prevent the, the large-scale manifestation of protests of people gathering together in this space that was obviously a transformative expression. But I think, I think the Mubarak regime acknowledged that this was a possible threat and tried to regulate it, mm -hmm. but failed, ultimately. So what are some of the other forms, then, of this regulation? Mm -hmm. um, you, know, you, you mentioned before um, uh, kind of legal forms and physical yeah. forms. Um, so what is kind of unique about this perspective that you're bringing in terms of the, the sorts of things that we might focus upon as we're trying to understand these strategies of sovereignty? So I think what I try and do in the book is, is focus on the position of, of agency. And I think that's, that's something that has been lacking to a degree in the sense that when we've been looking at, at the, the uprisings and the responses to the uprisings, We've been focusing on processes, we've been focusing on the geopolitical dimensions, focusing on this sort of sectarianization of regional politics, sectarianization of local politics. But what I try and do in the book is, is tell a few stories about individuals and, and try and bring in the human into this. Try and look at how sovereign power affects people. And I'll give you another example from the case of Bahrain. There was a, a Bahraini sports journalist, uh, a woman called Eman Salehi, and she was shot in, in the years after the uprisings. I can't remember the exact year, sorry. And she was shot by a member of the Al Khalifa. And what happened was this gentleman went and turned himself into a local police station. But in sort of building on some of Agamben's ideas about the regulation of life and the conditions that allow the sovereign to take life without repercussions, this member of the Al Khalifa was later released without charge. And so this woman was killed by a member of the sovereign uh, sovereign family without any repercussions. And I think that gives a just a devastating example of how the sovereign is able to do pretty much whatever they want in these conditions of a state of exception, a state of emergency, whereby they are granted the power to do whatever they want to life. 
And state of emergency has essentially been the de facto exactly. default operating system for pretty much every Arab regime. Exactly. Uh, yeah. For, for quite a long time. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point to make. That if you look back over the history of um, of the region, you see it's punctured by declarations of states of emergency. You see that all the constitutions are written with clauses that give regimes a right to suspend the law in times of crisis. Who defines a crisis? Of course, it's the regime. It's not necessarily concerning the state, but it's concerning the survival of the of the ruling elite. So it it's really enshrined within the legal political fabric of these states. They're designed to try and help regimes to sort of to stay in power. But even when these these states of emergencies are not declared, the legacy and the remnants of those states of emergency continue to resonate. The conditions remain. The legacy of fear remains. I mean, if you have the state of exception declared where the police and the army come in, do X, Y, and Z, and then individuals are tried in military courts without due process, a state of emergency is lifted. Your fear towards the army, towards the police, towards the judiciary, that's going to remain. And so that continues to have an impact on how people live their daily lives. I mean, in a sense, um, you would think that what this long-term regulation of life, uh, as you're describing it, it should have a pretty strong socializing power. Yeah. And yet one way of, uh, you talk about agency, mm -hmm. um, but one way of reading the Arab uprisings is just the shocking extent to which vast majorities of people were not so thoroughly conditioned by fear, by kind of learned submission. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's actually quite fascinating to think about the, the recapturing of agency yeah. um, at a time when I think there's a number of theoretical traditions which would suggest that that couldn't have happened. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the really important features, particularly across the Gulf, um, and this came out in, in interviews that I did with, with Gulfies, is that whilst there was this demand and a desire for, for better democratic engagement and participation and political reform, there was this very clear and clever articulation of, look, yeah, we can go down the route of democratic reform, of political participation, but if you do that, you're going to end up like Syria. Do we want to end up like Syria? No. Well then, let's keep it as it is. And then... When you start getting then to the final kind of the big question then is yeah. the possibility of real change. Yeah. Um, you know, do you expect that where you do see changes of regime, they'll simply replicate all of these kind of old habits and yeah. old patterns of rule? Or is there actually agency at that level, uh, kind of Sudan or kind of Tunisia, have the agency to change the way sovereignty is exercised and life is ordered or are yeah. they just trapped by the by the state that they're taking over well, i think that's a really good question and it's it's something that that i've been grappling with since finishing the book the book was finished before the recent spate of, of uprisings in iraq and lebanon and sudan which which prompted me to reflect on this in a in a different way because what i would have said is that the state would continue to exist in a similar type of way, even though we see different types of regimes. And the example would be would be Egypt, even though uh, Mohamed Morsi was able to to become democratically elected, uh, regardless of your views on Morsi, the uh, what followed, what happened to him, essentially brought about the same type of state that came before. So those those structural forces remain and continue to shape the life of, of Egyptians. Now, I think what we're seeing in Lebanon and Iraq is an attempt by protesters to try and dismantle those deeper structures 
particularly in Lebanon. And it's taken months, it's taken a huge amount of effort from protesters. Now, depending on your reading of it, it's either starting to work and they're starting to untangle this complex web of structures that regulate life, or they're struggling, they're dramatically struggling. And whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, I think, will shape your analysis of this. Of course, in Iraq, I think it's a bit darker, it's not as successful. But I guess over the next six months or so, it remains to be seen whether the Lebanese will be able to dismantle those those deep socioeconomic, political, cultural, legal structures that have been moulded together over the past hundred years or so to create this this sovereign beast that has the capacity to regulate all aspects of life in the face of a range of threats designed to ensure the survival of the status quo. And I guess we'll have to then wait and see. I guess we will. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Simon Maybon about his new book, Houses Built on Sand, Violence, Sectarianism and Revolution in the Middle East. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm.